This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today in our Revenue Cycle series, we're continuing the conversation about patient financial communication in the hospital. And then Betty Hinch will bring us the top five key performance indicators for the value-based payment transition. But first, here's Rich Daly with the news. This is Rich Daly, Senior Writer and Editor for HFMA, with your news in healthcare finance policy and practice. In our first item, the Trump administration is mulling changes to the Medicare Hospital Wage Index system, including the creation of a commuting-based wage index, according to federal officials. Communications between CMS and the HHS Office of Inspector General said CMS plans next year to consider several steps, including seeking legislative authority to penalize hospitals that submit inaccurate or incomplete wage data in the absence of misrepresentation or falsification, as well as to repeal the law that created the Rural Floor Wage Index. In the near term, CMS may work with Medicare administrative contractors to develop a program of in-depth wage data audits at a limited number of hospitals each year. In other news, a recent interview with HFMA by an executive from the not-for-profit Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Arizona insurer identified positive first-year results from that insurer's first expansion into value-based payment beyond the well-established patient-centered medical homes. The newer model used quality and cost outcomes to offer upside bonuses to a network of 600 independent primary care physicians treating commercially insured patients. The model produced a nearly 4% reduction in the cost trend for those patients in just its first year. Finally, members of the U.S. Senate said they will push legislation to limit surprise medical bills and to support direct primary care as part of congressional efforts to control rising health care costs. Senator Maggie Hassan, Democrat of New Hampshire, said her recently introduced legislation would create a, quote, binding arbitration process to determine the appropriate provider payment rate in surprise out-of-network scenarios. That would apply to federally regulated self-insured plans. Senator Bill Cassidy, a Republican from Louisiana, said he is writing bipartisan legislation to require the IRS to allow consumers to use health savings accounts or health reimbursement arrangements to purchase direct primary care on a pre-tax basis. For more details on these stories and other daily news, check out hfma.org forward slash news. And now a quick message before we move to our next story. Are you interested in extending your organization's thought leadership? Connect with HFMA listeners by sponsoring an upcoming podcast. For more information and to discover all the ways you can partner with HFMA, visit us at marketingopportunities.hfma.org. Welcome back to Voices in Healthcare Finance. 
A few episodes ago, we discussed inpatient stays with Krista Mazurik from Geisinger Health. Today, we're going to be talking about what happens when a normal inpatient stay suddenly isn't. The weird thing to talk about money because it, it sounds so churlish once you get a happy baby, but it's really hard. This is my friend Elizabeth. Her son, Morty, was born in February. Today, he's thriving and easily one of the top two cutest babies born this year. And yes, mine is the other one. But at 32 weeks, Elizabeth's pregnancy, which had been pretty normal up to that point, took a turn when she was diagnosed with gestational hypertension. I was admitted for a couple of days. Um, They sent me home, and the goal had been to get to 37 weeks, um, and I didn't quite make it at 35 weeks. I was readmitted to the hospital, again, with high blood pressure, and at that point, they couldn't get it down with medication. Um, When they had sent me home, they had been able to um, lower it with um, a bunch of different medications. So a doctor came in the morning of February 28th and said, Elizabeth, I'm done with you being pregnant. And you're having a baby today. And I think at some point I said, I'm not ready. And they said, we don't care. In addition to Elizabeth's blood pressure issues, her baby was breached, so Morty was born by C-section. But her story doesn't end there. After about two hours, the nurse said, I don't really like his breathing. Morty spent 10 days in the neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU. And Elizabeth remained in the hospital for a full week as she recovered from the C-section and worked to get her blood pressure to a safe level. Did you at any point have a financial conversation with anybody or did you just start to get bills after you came home for the NICU and all that? I did. I feel fortunate in that, um, you know, a social worker met with us um, to talk about, talk through some of those things. And, and I do also, well, so a couple of things that I want to mention. One is that this particular NICU has a really wonderful foundation where one of the things when you're admitted to the NICU is this foundation gives you a parking pass. And that's a financial aspect that I don't think people who have not had a NICU experience necessarily um, expect. But if you have a baby in a NICU for a long time, and even if one parent is coming and going, if you're in a downtown area as we are, that that cost can really um, add up. So we're really appreciative of that. Um, Then at an insurance, we essentially had to be assigned a caseworker with our insurance because... At a certain point, the baby had to be approved for, you know, kind of more time in the NICU, and I had to be approved. Most of the time with C-sections, it's pretty standard that you get four days. Um, You know, I had been there. I I was there for seven. So that all had to be approved. The one other thing, too, is that my particular hospital was going through an electronic health records transition between when I was admitted at 32 weeks and when I was admitted at 35 weeks. So some of my bills are available online. Some of them aren't. And the other thing that I would, if if people are listening to this who are anticipating this experience, is that I kept every single piece of paperwork because even that because again some stuff was online and some stuff wasn't, and I would have conversations about you know whether the billing was correct. And out of the you know ten calls I've made, nine of them were correct and one wasn't. Um, it was all of a thirty-five dollar bill, but I felt really. <laughs> about the fact that I said, no, I already paid this one. One of the reasons I chose maternity care as the center of this series, besides the fact that I was going through it, is that it's fairly routine and generally a happy event. But with any treatment, there's no guarantee of smooth sailing. Today, we're returning to Betty Hinch's conversation with Krista Mazurik to discuss what happens when an inpatient stay takes a difficult turn. That, of course, is an unexpected issue, so that prevents us from having the conversation prior to the services. So, you know, once some mom delivers and we know that there may be, um, you know, issues that may prevent the, the, the baby from going home and may 
be required to remain in the NICU. At that point, we would make arrangements to um, work with our care managers and as well as the parents to meet with the family and go over to determine, you know, is the insurance that they have adequate and will they have enough coverage for the hospital stay? Um, you know, at that time, depending on the severity of the, the child's um, diagnosis, what we may do is we may review to see if they would qualify for any type of additional um, assistance. So would they be qualified as being disabled or would they qualify for medical assistance as a secondary insurance? Because, of course, you know, even though you have the primary coverage, it could, it could still leave the family with a lot of outstanding obligations. And we know that they already have enough concerns, you know, with their baby being in the hospital that they don't want to have to worry about that as well. So that's usually, you know, the way that we identify is we go ahead and um, review the patient to see if they qualify for any additional assistance that could help them with those, those outstanding obligations that they may incur. What does Geisinger do to uh, help patients understand the bills that they do get? Well, that is definitely our goal is to ensure that we have a patient-friendly statement that's easy for our patients to understand. Um, we have worked um, to combine our statements to include both physician and hospital charges on one statement. That way it prevents the patient from receiving multiple statements in the mail from Geisinger for services that they may have had performed. Um, you know, the statement is very detailed. It clearly identifies the data service, where the services took place, what service was performed, as well as the dollar amount. Um, we include any payment options on our statement for the patient so that they're aware of who they contact if they are not able to afford their bill. And it also provides um, a very detailed um, description of our uncompensated care policy so that patients are aware of the guidelines and know if they may or may not qualify for um, any type of financial assistance that is available. Our staff, they go through um, some online modules as well as um, in-classroom training. Um, you know, we do review the, the patient financial communication best practices with our staff they receive training on our financial assistance policies as well as any of our um, payment options. They do also receive um, training on patients, you know, who may be uninsured versus underinsured. And then there's also an in-class training on customer service to ensure that our staff are aware how to have the financial conversation with patients and, you know, how to handle any types of scenarios that may come up. We do check with our care managers to determine the severity of the patient's condition. And, you know, they may go ahead and then at that point adjust their conversation as needed or, you know, determine the appropriate time to meet with the family. You know, if the child was just born and, you know, it's only a few days after the child being born, maybe they need to hold off on having that conversation until the child's a little more stable and the family's able to um, speak with us. So it, it kind of varies on a case-by-case -case basis. And, um, you know, we do work with care management who works with the families closer to, you know, go ahead and try to determine the appropriate time to have the conversation. How do you benchmark your revenue cycle performance? Many organizations measure success compared to past performance. Others leverage software to benchmark against other facilities that share the same technology. But that only paints part of the picture. What about comparing your performance to your peers? Peers that you define in custom peer groups. 
MapApp is the online benchmarking tool from HFMA that helps organizations compare their performance against data from more than 600 facilities. Interested in taking the next steps to identify your revenue cycle opportunities? Visit hfma.org forward slash MapApp. And now it's time for Fast Five. Five fast facts about a hot topic in healthcare. Today, we are sharing five new KPI categories that healthcare organizations are likely to track as value-based payment models take hold. Readmissions. Most organizations are already looking at readmissions within 30 days of discharge. What's changed is the way in which health plans measure this metric. They aren't looking at whether a single patient is readmitted within 30 days of discharge. Instead, they're looking at total readmission rates for an entire population. Emergency department rates. Payers using an emergency department rate, KPI, hold organizations accountable for staying below a certain number of emergency department visits per year. This target number is based on patient severity as evidenced by previous claims data. If organizations exceed this number, they're penalized. If they stay below this number, they receive financial incentives. Patient leakage. What services do patients tend to seek elsewhere, and how often does this occur? If an organization is at risk for a particular population, it needs to capture every dollar that's spent on patients within that population. Doing so creates accurate cost benchmarks against which organizations are held accountable. Total cost of care. In a total cost of care contract, a per member, per month payment is established. Providers are successful when they identify at-risk populations, manage care for these populations within an integrated network, and deliver and measure efficient, high-quality care. Providers must be able to maintain an accurate core set of KPIs that dynamically capture performance and quality data and present it in real time so effective interventions can be initiated. Patient satisfaction and care. Value-based contracts may also require organizations to measure a whole host of other KPIs, such as patient satisfaction, patient access to care, and gaps in care. These tips come from John Kelly, a principal business advisor at Edifex. Read more at hfma.org slash revenue cycle forum slash new KPIs. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. The news segment is written and recorded by Rich Daly. Additional reporting was done this week by Betty Hinch. Sound editing is by Brian Kuhn. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to tell a friend or colleague if you like what you're hearing. And tell us what you think. Contact our team at podcast at hfma.org to pitch your story or share your thoughts about our podcast. 